0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Lots of functions in government need more people. Acquisition is no exception. And getting the people in they need, that's a top priority of chief acquisition officers. And they've got lots of options on how to do it. We get more now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And this came up at the recent conference of your old organization, the Coalition for Government Procurement. That was a top-of-mind topic, wasn't it?
0: Tom, it was. And I think it's something that both industry and government can agree upon. We're in a situation right now in government acquisition where we absolutely need to add to the acquisition workforce in government. There are a number of things that contractors can do to assist government contracting officers, Tom, but in awarding and auditing and managing a government contract, they're all inherently governmental functions. And you need a well-trained acquisition workforce to do that. In some respects, we've never really gotten over some of the intended procurement reforms of the late and mid-1990s, where we saw acquisition streamlined, at least for a bit. I would argue that it's certainly not streamlined today. But one of the byproducts of that effort was a substantial reduction in the acquisition workforce ranks. Well, now we have both stressed acquisition and new rules. And that means that we need to have a better acquisition workforce. So what we're hearing from acquisition officials and government is that they're trying to be flexible, innovative in how they attract people to the acquisition workforce and once they're in the acquisition workforce keeping them in there because there are a lot of options for federal employees and acquisition is one where I personally have seen many talented people start only to have them shift out and go into other areas of government. So you really want to try to not just get people in, but keep them in the acquisition workforce, which means they have to have some obvious career goals and some opportunities for advancement. So I'm in support of this. I do think that we need to watch it a little bit because it's tough to recruit people today, whether it's to acquisition workforce jobs or just about anything else in employment. So contractors need to Be aware of the fact that they're using some innovative ways to get people in who are probably going to need a little bit more training than a traditional acquisition workforce member. So patience and uh, awareness on the part of the industry is probably going to be a factor in here, too.
1: I was speaking with one acquisition executive in a large agency who said that, in his experience, federal acquisition, federal procurement jobs are attractive to business majors that are leaving the colleges looking for jobs. You know, there's a certain cadre that really likes accounting and finance. There's a certain cadre that likes actuarial work, which sounds dull to the average person, but, you know, it's not, really, once you get into it and understand it. And the same is true for federal procurement. It's like a giant puzzle, like a big Rubik's cube to solve, given the FAR, etc. So maybe, uh, maybe the government doesn't realize how, I don't know, how to advertise what an interesting profession it actually can be.
0: Well, you see everything in government acquisition and procurement, Tom. As you know, uh, we've been in it for a little while. But it really does offer everything you might uh, imagine. It offers the opportunity to negotiate a good deal on the part of the government. So for that a little bit, standing for truth, justice in the American way in order to try and get a good deal. It also requires that you have substantial knowledge of what's going on in industry, uh, different industry segments. That requires that you keep your knowledge current. So it's not a Ronco profession where you set it and forget it. There's a lot going on in government acquisition. And the people who stay in it long enough and have the opportunity for career advancement, they advance and they become names that, at least in our industry, are kind of household names of people who really made the system work. And what system are we talking about? Well, no less than the successful operation of the U.S. government.
1: We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And sometimes that government can bite if you're on the industry side. And yesterday uh, we had an interview with a Attorney for the Associated Construction Contractors of the United States. And they are concerned about this rule from the Biden administration requiring contractors to report on their climate impact and how much CO2 they produce and what their plan for mitigating it is. And it goes just beyond construction, right? I mean, you've You've uh, determined that it could be a really expensive rule across the board and touching a lot of would-be contractors.
0: Tom, you mentioned something really interesting there, and you're absolutely on the right track. And that is that when the first Biden administration pronouncements came out about greenhouse gases and CO2 emissions and things of that nature, most people outside of the building industry kind of looked at it and said, well that's attended more and more for the commercial real estate and building management part of the world. That's not the case at all. In fact, we've already seen GSA put a greenhouse gas provision in the draft RFP for the next round of their commercial platform initiative program, right there with uh, at least one other environmental requirement for contractors tracking their carbon footprint. So it really is going to be in almost every commercial item contract as well as non-commercial item contract, Tom. Industry of all stripes needs to look at this proposed rule carefully. There's a comment period out on it now. I absolutely recommend commenting on what this rule could do in terms of increasing overall costs for government because this is going to be predominantly a special government only rule. That a long number of companies don't have to adhere to in their commercial business. And that's going to perhaps lead to higher prices and costs in government, which means that the prices that uh, government contracting officers pay, uh, as we talked about in our first segment, are gonna go up, uh, as well as uh, will costs for industry. So I recommend understanding what's in this rule, getting out ahead of it, because this rule is almost certainly going to happen tom even if it's in the proposed stage now the fact that there's already a greenhouse gas requirement in a draft rfp tells you that this is a done deal at least uh, on some level if you get out in front of it and complain accordingly then at least you've got a longer runway to implement this into your business practice
1: i wonder if this really is going to be government unique because you know there was a time when the top captains of industry I mean, they tried to behave legally, but they would give the government a piece of their mind if they didn't like what the government was doing. Now, most of the industrial leaders pretty much kowtow. They're afraid of what people are going to say on social media. They're afraid of retribution from regulatory agencies. So they, they kind of, well, pretty much toe the line on what they think is politically correct. So I wonder if some of the large corporate leaders now will adopt similar rules of their own, say the car companies, for example, in sourcing glass, plastic, forgings sheet metal and everything else, castings that go into a car, the same type of rule.
0: Well, and that's it. I mean, certainly, I think you're right. Uh, And we've probably already seen some major uh, large corporations make similar requirements of their supplier base. But that's also part of the issue, Tom. And that is, can everybody agree on a unified set of standards? Or are we going to have standards that are slightly shaded one way for the federal government Slightly shaded in another way for the state of California that has a tradition, especially now, of going off and doing their own thing. And perhaps still a third set of standards that people will have to meet, depending on what type of commercial business they do. I think if even if you're a supplier, Tom, whether it's a commercial item supplier, commercial service supplier, building supplier, uh, you're going to have to pay attention to this rule and implement a number of the compliance standards that they uh, are expecting of you. The good news is that they are industry standards, so that uh, if there are people in the commercial world that use the same guidelines, hopefully there won't be too much variation. But it's uh, new and uh, it will cost you something. So. If you know that, then you want to start now to be ready.
1: Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much.
0: Tom, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy selling.
1: We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, this, on the Metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I, I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues.
2: And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you.
3: Well, I wish I wish it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long. Right. So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders. We want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense.
2: Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started?
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think, is really helpful because it's not one size fits all.
2: Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings. And I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent. And you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation or helping to train them. Federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs how do we encourage? How do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service?
3: You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in right students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know there there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks